The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Thank you for joining us on today's programme, Low and No. There was a time when if you didn't want alcohol, then your options were few and far between. So much has changed and real innovation is driving a sales boom. We'll talk to Christine Parkinson, the former head of wine at Hackersan Group and a real expert on the category to find out what's going on. If you love Marlborough Sauvignon, then prepare to pay more for it if you can get hold of it. There's a shortage due to what's really the perfect storm. Demand is higher than ever before, but the 2021 harvest delivered really low yields because of some early frost. We'll hear more from Freddie Bulmer from the Wine Society in the first of his monthly features talking about life as a wine buyer. Looking forward to that. And is football coming home? Well, surely that means a box of beer is also definitely coming home. Uh, We'll talk to beer buyer Alex Davis to find out more about his job and we'll hear how they worked with brewers to help mitigate the effects of the pubs being shut uh, earlier in the year. Plus, we'll have our usual selection of winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Time was when alcohol-free meant a night of calibre, barbican or bitter lemon. Going dry was about as enticing as getting wet, to be honest. But much has changed. In fact, it's been more of a revolution, really. The low and no alcohol category is worth millions and it's a hotbed of innovation and development. So much so that it's now spawned its own categories at the world's most respected competitions like the IWSC. Christine Parkinson is, amongst other things, a judge for that competition, as well as being a consultant in the drinks industry. And she's a former group head of wine at Hakkasan Restaurants. And Chrissy joins us now. Welcome to The Drinking Hour, Chrissy. It's lovely to chat to you. Hello, David. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's no exaggeration, is it, to say there's been a revolution in low and no? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think... For most of my career, I've been focusing on wine and then sake was new and exciting. But there wasn't um, there wasn't anything for me to do in the past with low and no, because like you say, there was just sort of caliber and iceberg and nobody, nobody in smart restaurants wanted to drink them anyway. But it's uh, suddenly it's the most exciting place to be, I think. And tell us how you've seen it evolve then in the time that you've been a, um, a leading figure in the drinks world it's obviously come from more or less nowhere yeah it it has and the interesting thing for me is that it it i think consumers wanted it before there was really anything good there for them to drink uh, i noticed in the restaurants for a long time that people were drinking less and people who perhaps might have had um, a bottle of wine were having a glass of wine but they weren't they didn't you know they weren't restricted by what they could spend uh, we saw people wanting to spend money and we sort of suddenly clicked that actually they they just don't want as much alcohol but the manufacturing industry producers were really slow to catch up with that fast forward uh, about six years from when I, I did the big project on this at Hakkasan and now there's there's new producers coming online uh, every week. I think it's no exaggeration to say, and there's just so many great products. I know I, my inbox actually, because I featured uh, uh, particularly on the telly. I featured uh, some low and no products earlier this year, and suddenly, uh, bam! There's a new product. Uh, you know, every couple of days coming into my <laughs> inbox. Would I like to try it? And yeah. I, I can't really can't keep up. Actually, alcohol-free as a definition, it's worth going into that because um, people <laughs> could be confused by what actually defines alcohol-free, couldn't they? Well, uh, I'm confused. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, it, it it it's really complicated, and part of the problem is the the rules in the UK are different from rules in other countries. But 
products can come in from other countries labelled as they would be in their place of origin and they can sit on a shelf or on a, a wine list you know or a drinks list next to an, a product from the UK and one of them will call itself non-alcoholic, one of them will call itself alcohol free, one of them will call itself low alcohol and they can all have pretty much exactly the same alcohol content, you know, typically about half a percent. So it, it's, it, it's one of those things where, to be honest, you've just got to look at the label and see what the percentage is. Out of beer, wine or spirits, which category do you think provides the best experience for someone who wants to go alcohol free? Uh, I think a year ago, I think I would have said beer 100 percent. Um, the situation, like we said, is changing so fast. The uh, spirits category is absolutely brilliant now. Uh, I think wine is playing catch up, to be honest. Mm, yeah, I certainly have that perception myself, um, having judged uh, some of these products alongside you, actually. Why is it so difficult to make a drink that usually has alcohol without that seemingly magical ingredient? I think there's, two, for me, there's two big problems. So obviously with a beer or a cider, you're only talking about typically 5% alcohol. Uh, with a wine, you're talking maybe 14%, and that's a, a huge amount to extract from a drink uh, and expect it to still taste good. And of course, you know, I think we forget what alcohol does. It doesn't just make us drunk. It gives texture and body. It adds some flavour. And it it also carries a lot of uh, lovely aromatic components. So uh, wine is at a real disadvantage. And the other problem, I think, for wine is that grapes are sweet. <laughs> so it sounds a bit odd, but... Um, Wine grapes are actually much sweeter than table grapes. So that's, you know, you make wine by converting that sugar into alcohol. If you're making uh, a beer, for instance, you don't start with a sweet product. You start with grains and you have to malt them to get sugar and, and you can manage that. So you get just as much sugar as you need. But the problem with wine is you, you take away the alcohol, but you start with a sweet product and you don't really have the option of just, you know, if you partly ferment it, it's going to end up very sweet and you've somehow got to manage that as well. Spirits are a really interesting area for innovation, as you were saying. And obviously, um, you're dealing in a spirit with higher levels of alcohol. So that textural thing that alcohol brings is that much harder to replicate, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But uh, I think this, well, I, actually, I think what's happening is that people producing wines are starting to look at how the, the alcohol-free spirits are being made. And they're starting to consider maybe blending in, you know, um, herbals, botanicals, spices that can replicate some of the sensations uh, of texture and and you know, the warmth of alcohol, because the, the spirit, um, the, the non-alcoholic spirit uh, category is, is all about blending, you know, components, mainly botanicals. And there's some real skill there. I mean, some amazing stuff coming out. Yeah, no, there is. And um, when I was, uh, I mentioned the fact that I, I, I ended up during dry January on uh, this morning with uh, <laughs> Phil and Holly uh, talking through some low and no products. And um, I had to defend the products because quite justifiably, uh, Philip Schofield said, how can these be so expensive? Because, of course, a large part of what you're paying yeah. for in an alcoholic product is tax. And if there's no alcohol, there's no tax. Now, I said you're paying for innovation. And I did that kind of on the hoof because I had to think of some kind of justification. Is that true? Is that what we're paying for? Or are, is there some profiteering going on here? No, I, I don't think there's any profiteering. I, I'm not seeing anybody uh, getting super rich. I think each product is different. I mean, if you think about something like a wine, to get to a a dealcoholized wine first you've got to make the wine so you've got all the costs of making the wine growing the grapes 
then you remove 14-15% um, of it and then you've got to do all kinds of work to try and, and make it you know taste good uh, with products like the non-alcoholic spirits uh, we mentioned you know botanicals uh, in particular and good ones don't come cheap you know I mean think about it this way botanicals are one of the main things that you see in good perfume being made of uh, we're not surprised that perfume is expensive and takes massive skill to make I think we shouldn't be surprised that uh, non-alcoholic drinks are expensive and take skill and you know fabulous ingredients to make the good ones good point on the perfume actually i, I hadn't really thought about that but you're yeah, absolutely yeah. right um, in terms of the demand you've already said that you you kind of noticed the demand being there before many of the products were there, which is really interesting. And I, I hadn't really considered that, but then I don't have that, uh, you know, restaurant buying experience that, that you do. So how do you think the lists in bars and restaurants are keeping up with the consumer now? I, I don't think they're quite there. I, I think there's a few places that are doing a fabulous job. You know, they've set out to do a, a good job and offer a great um, no and low list. But I think the overwhelming majority are struggling because, oh, like, like we said, so many of the products are new. So uh, the, the restaurant owners, the sommeliers, the buyers, they, they're not familiar with all the products. Uh, another issue which I guess people don't think about, but most restaurants have uh, like a roster of suppliers they buy from and those suppliers are you know, being fairly slow to take up a good range of no and low drinks. It's happening. Uh, but, you know, with all this kind of training and education and learning about it going on in the background, there's a definite time lag happening. So I'm hoping that, you know, in the coming uh, year or so, we'll, we'll see some much, much more appealing lists in, in restaurants and bars. And actually, on the uh, bar list, one of the areas I think does really well is mocktails. I think they, you know, they look really exciting. They look interesting. I think if I'm sitting there with my Negroni, with all the alcohol, my favourite cocktail, by the way, but all the alcohol yeah. that's there, where where you're mixing alcohol with alcohol with alcohol, and I'm sitting there uh, with that lovely drink, and someone is not drinking because they're driving or, or they're pregnant or, or whatever reason, don't, they just don't want to, um, then I think they can sit there with a mocktail and probably have something as exciting, can't they? Yeah, they can. Um, I mean, yes, they, they definitely can. But that's, that's also an evolving situation because if you go back three or four years, mocktails were kind of universally sweet and fruity. And um, I mean, Negroni's my favourite as well, actually. But, you oh. know, a sort <laughs> of a fruit juicy kind of mocktail didn't used to do it for me. I think the situation's good now because there are, you know, not just non-alcoholic versions of, of that taste like gin or, or rum, but there are all of the um, sort of vermouth type styles, liqueurs in, in non-alcoholic, even non-alcoholic versions or drinks that um, actually, the, it, excitingly, they're not just copies of existing alcoholic drinks but they're doing something new and different on their own so i think it's a fantastic time to be a cocktail bartender with with drinkers who don't want alcohol i think there's a real chance to um innovate actually <laughs> yeah no there is a, there's a a really exciting opportunity to be at the cutting edge of a of a new category within an existing one which i think as you say is is really really exciting if someone's focus is on just cutting their alcohol rather than cutting it out um, then there are drinks choices that are lower in alcohol that don't sit in low and no uh, aren't there yeah there are um this is something you're seeing quite a bit in wine, where uh, a lot of um, winemakers are starting to think about how they can produce their wine with less alcohol. There's been some good work done in New Zealand, actually, where they're producing things like Sauvignon Blanc that everybody likes, uh, but with 
you know quite a lot less alcohol more like about nine degrees something like that eight nine percent alcohol rather than sort of 14. Beer's another good place uh, there's a uh, am, am I allowed to mention names? Yes you are yes. <laughs> okay I'm a big fan of um, the small beer company you know they make some lovely drinks that are around two percent uh, so yeah there's lower is is good I think but of course Blending is also good. You mentioned mocktails. One of the things that I think we're just starting to see is uh, products without alcohol being used in alcoholic cocktails. Uh, so you're getting a much lower overall alcohol, but fantastic flavour and texture. So that's a, another, you know, good place to go. And do you have some particular favourites? As I said, we're allowed to mention names. So products in this category that have really deserve a mention yeah definitely uh i've got you know four or five go-to drinks and um i think innovation is key in all of them uh nine elms is a massive favorite and that's an example of something that drinks quite like a, a nice big rich red wine but actually it's it has nothing to do with wine it's made in a completely different way so i love that um I love Thompson Scott's Naughty, which is as close to a champagne without alcohol as you'll ever get. Uh, another great innovator, um, Three Spirit, they make really interesting sort of botanical based drinks that, you know, have, a, have a, an effect on you. That's the idea. Um, something we didn't really talk about that you get quite a lot with non-alcoholic drinks is shrubs and a variation is a switchel, I can never say that word. And Mother Root makes an absolutely gorgeous ginger one, which is just so refreshing, but also, you know, complex. So you can have it with food. And um, one last drink I just discovered uh, about two weeks ago, I, I went to uh, a, a trade uh, tasting and I came across a drink uh, based on honey called Bemuse. Uh, and apparently it's sort of reviving some old idea of sort of uh, mead flavoured with botanicals. Uh, I don't know very much about it, but it tasted sensational. So, yeah, I can, I, I can get really excited about some of these drinks, actually, David. Uh, they are terrific. Well, it's a sign of the times, isn't it? And I yeah. will definitely look out some of those products as well because there are so many, as we were saying, a bewildering array. Yeah. But it's yeah. a really exciting place to be as a, a category. So, Chrissy, uh, so thanks is. very much indeed uh, for joining us with your expertise on the drinking hour. You're welcome, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time for the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And of course, we need to feature some low and no triumphs. The first is an amazing product, Liars Amaretti Non-Alcoholic Spirit from Australia, which didn't just win a gold in 2020, it was also a trophy winner, the kind of best in show, I suppose you'd say. I actually featured this particular spirit or non-alcoholic spirit on my slot on this morning, and it was the favourite with both uh, Phil and Holly as well, as far as I could tell. The judges said a superbly authentic amaretto character with clean, focused notes of sweet almonds, marzipan and a light touch of coffee. There's great flavour intensity and weight on the palate, a well-crafted and decadent example. A really clever product, a clever bit of innovation. Next, another very clever product for gin lovers from Heyman Distillers. 
Heyman's Small Gin won a gold medal. It comes in a tiny bottle and it comes out in drops, almost dots really, of highly concentrated botanical spirit uh, to be mixed with tonic, meaning there's usually less than a daily unit of alcohol, depending on how you mix them and how many drops you put in, of course. Uh, the judges said a clean, juniper-focused character with supporting notes of pine, wood and bright citrus. The flavours are pronounced and classically London dry in style, mixing exceptionally well with the tonic. An elegant and refined example. And wine is tricky, as we've been discussing, but this one won a silver medal, Brancott Estate Fight Sauvignon Blanc 2020 from Marlborough, New Zealand, is just 9% alcohol, so lower than the usual of around, say, 13%. I was actually on the judging panel for this with Christine, and we said juicy notes of grapefruit, guava and bright lime brushed with telltale fresh cut grass in balanced fresh palate. Racy acidity reined in nicely. Excellent terroir and varietal expression. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. If you're a fan of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, then there's potentially some bad news, I'm afraid. It's in short supply. The problem is twofold. A perfect storm, really. Demand is sky high globally. The Marlborough Sauvignon success story is the stuff of legend in the wine world. But the 2021 harvest resulted in really low yields due in large part to some early spring frost. So demand is high, supply is low. You don't need a PhD in economics to work out that the price is going to rise. Freddie Bulmer is a regular on the drinking hour. He's a wine society buyer and New Zealand is part of his portfolio. And he joins us now for what we hope will be a monthly appearance to give us an insight into the life of a wine buyer. There there you go. I've committed you, Freddie. Hello. <laughs> Hello, David. Thanks for having me back. It's always so fun to talk to you. So thank you. This is great. Well, thank you. It's fun to talk to you too. So something that probably isn't a great deal of fun in your life at the moment. <laughs> um, tell us a bit more about uh, what's triggered this Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc short then. Yeah, it's uh, it's very much a challenge currently. So there's a number of things that have contributed to the shortage. Uh, and we really, I guess, in the UK market haven't quite seen the full extent of the shortage just yet, but it's something which is very much on the horizon. Um, but uh, a couple of, well, I, I'd say that the three main causes are First of all, uh, just increased demand for Marlborough Sauvignon around the world. Uh, you know, they, they've seen incredible growth with their exports over the last uh, year, 18 months in particular. But that combined with the fact that there's been uh, previous to the 2021 vintage, uh, which was obviously harvested earlier this year, uh, there'd been a couple of short vintages uh, which preceded that as well. So 2019 and 2020 were both very, very good quality vintages, but but harvest, uh, well, volumes uh, were down on where they should be, ideally. But now the 2021 vintage uh, is done and dusted and, and many of the wines are, are, are bottled. Uh, and unfortunately, due to some pretty severe spring frosts in, in much of New Zealand, uh, the yields are down quite considerably, so it's still um, it's still quite difficult to get a really complete idea of the exact kind of percentage uh, that is that has been lost from the 2021 vintage. But I've heard from various people in Marlborough, in particular, that uh, they're they're up to 40 percent down in 2021. Uh, it's a it's a slightly um, different picture in different parts of New Zealand. You know, it's not a complete disaster across the whole country. Central Otago hasn't suffered so much, for example, but but it's certainly a, a difficult old time for for winemakers in Marlborough. And for context, give us a sense then in the wine world of how important Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty pretty damn popular wine type certainly i mean in the uk we see it absolutely everywhere and we're not alone in that we're actually not the biggest export market even for marlborough sauvignon uh, which may come as a surprise because all it takes is to walk into a supermarket and uh, and it's and it's pretty much everywhere along the wine aisle um it's on every single restaurant wine list it's in every pub that you go into i mean it really has taken the world by storm but marlborough sauvignon is is by a long way the most commercially significant 
uh, wine style um, that comes out of New Zealand. But, you know, New Zealand as, as a whole um, hit, I believe, $2 billion uh, of, of uh, value in their wine exports last year, which was a new record. And Marlborough Sauvignon is the most significant contributor to that number. Uh, they've seen huge amounts of growth. I mean, the USA is their biggest uh, export market. That's uh, risen by by four four percent. That accounts for over six hundred million dollars of their exports, and we're second with uh, just over four hundred and sixty million dollars. So it's um, it's a seriously in demand wine style around the world, really. It's incredible, isn't it? And you know, I think it accounts for nine in ten bottles of wine exported into the UK from New Zealand, which is a pretty gobsmacking figure when you consider yeah. how much amazing wine there is coming from New Zealand anyway. But uh, there we go. So it's obviously hugely in demand. Are we going to see uh, the price really noticeably shooting up for in terms of what we pay as consumers, do you think? I think, unfortunately, there is going to be a bit of that. Yeah. And I mean, if some people have been able to hold their prices for this year, it's certainly not going to be feasible to continue to do that. So I think we will actually start to see a bit of a repositioning of Marlborough Sauvignon, uh, you know, in the UK wine market. Um, the the cost of bulk wine has, has gone up considerably due to the shortage, but there's also increased costs of dry goods and that sort of thing, which is really not helping the matter. So where we have, you know, up until now had plenty of options under nine, ten pounds uh, for Marlborough Sauvignon in the UK, I think those are going to be slightly fewer and, and further between. Um, so, you know, maybe it's uh, it's not necessarily all bad in the long run, because I think that there's been lots of winemakers in New Zealand who haven't been making any money for quite a long time because it's been seen as somewhat of a, of a you know an everyday wine for want a of a commodity term. of some a kind commodity yeah. yeah exactly exactly and actually you know there are some very very good examples out there and now they're probably actually just going to be sold for what they deserve to be sold for uh, but we certainly will see a, i think a change in its position in the uk and and, well, and everywhere to be honest I spoke to a buyer in the bulk wine business, so a very different area to the one you operate in. But uh, um, she has had to shift focus completely uh, from New Zealand uh, because obviously the uh, it's really hard to get hold of, almost impossible to get hold of bulk wine at the moment uh, from Marlborough, so certainly Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, she's shifted focus to South Africa. And so in a sense, mm. given the challenges for the South African wine economy at the moment um there could be some silver lining to this i guess as well well i guess you know with every challenge comes an opportunity as well as they say that's a bit of a cliche but i think it does sort of apply here uh you know there's lots of excellent sauvignon blanc made around the world and new zealand has or marlborough sauvignon let's say has become kind of a brand in its own um and when it's been in in ready supply then obviously it's very easy to just kind of maintain its momentum but i think it will force the consumer to to mix it up a little bit but also it'll force uh wine retailers to mix it up a little bit and and i guess not you know not rest on on the laurels that we might have rested on whereby you know we know that marble sauvignon sells so let's just keep pushing that and actually branch out a little bit it's it's a particular challenge though at the bottom end um you know i i think it is important to point out that there is still going to be Marlborough Sauvignon out there. Uh, mm. And there's still going to be very, very good Marlborough Sauvignon out there. And it's not as though we're just going to suddenly see it disappear. But the real uh, change in availability will be at that entry-level price point with those, um, you know, own-label wines and that sort of thing, like you mentioned, which are, are dictated largely by the bulk market. So there will still be plenty of Marlborough Sauvignon out there, but it might just be a little bit more expensive. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's really not going to disappear. It's, it's really interesting to think what they will do in the pub, actually, because uh, mm. if you think about the position that Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc has had on the on the blackboard, you know, at uh, twenty three quid or something, then they're probably buying that in at uh, I don't know um, six or seven, and they're not yeah. going to be able to. So they're going to have to find something else to go on that blackboard in that particular uh, place, I would imagine. In terms of yeah. choices you might make, um, if you were telling someone what to look for instead of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, because it's quite a distinctive style. Yeah. Uh, where would you lead them to? That's a really good question, actually, because I think there are lots of other options around the world. I mean, the obvious uh, and obviously overlooked 
source of good quality Sauvignon Blanc is is the Loire. I mean, you know, it's often bought by a different type of consumer, I think it's fair to say, than uh, the type of consumer who buys Marlborough Sauvignon. But there's fantastic value and quality available from the Loire. So that would actually be uh, a key a key suggestion that I would make to somebody. Um, I also think actually Australia, um, you know, Australian Sauvignon Blanc has for a long time been overlooked because of the fact that it's not that far away from New Zealand in terms of uh, certainly where we perceive it to be on the map. It is quite a long flight, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I think that they, they are, uh, Australian and New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc would have maybe jostled for a similar position on a wine list. And because of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc being so successful, it's obviously always won. But uh, I think that, I mean, I've already seen evidence of people turning to Australia from the 2021 vintage and trying to secure stock from there that they otherwise would have perhaps previously bought from from New Zealand. And of course, you mentioned South Africa as well. South Africa is such a fa fascinating uh, source of, of wine at all levels, actually. And as much as they do fine wine fantastically, the value in South Africa can be absolutely remarkable. So it's, a, it's another good place. But I think it's a really good opportunity for people to actually branch out and and, and use the grape that they're familiar with to explore wine from lots of other countries. So that's one of your challenges at the moment, um, uh, uh -huh. a, a current kind of Freddie Bulmer headache, if you like. Um, <laughs> hopefully not a headache this week was your big uh, spring-summer press tasting. Yes. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, I was very fortunate to uh, be invited along to this. I say be invited along. It was uh, I was invited along to my kitchen uh, because it was a, <laughs> a virtual tasting because you're still at the Wine Society taking um, the kind of cautious route uh, with tastings, presumably um, because you have to plan these things uh, sometime in advance. Yeah. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with a press tasting, um, tell us uh, what you're sort of aiming to do and why people like me are so absolutely incredibly important. Well, David, where do I begin? Where do I begin with how important you are? Uh, no, it's, 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 a really, it's a really nice way really for us as buyers to be able to show what we're really excited about. You know, we're all buying wines from the regions that we work with that we buy because, you know, we believe in them, we believe in their potential to... to you know, provide a really ex exceptional drinking experience. And this is a really good vehicle for someone in my position to say, hey, everyone, look, look at this wine, look at this new discovery that I'm really excited about. And I think you should be excited about as well. And, you know, the the wine uh, press and, and journalists and writers and so on, and yourself included, have uh, a fantastic and engaged audience. Uh, you know, there's no doubt some crossover from one wine writer to another, but but you've all got your own audience. And yeah, they're obviously reading what you're writing because they're interested in wine and, and, and they care about it and they're looking for your suggestions. So it's a really uh, fantastic vehicle for someone in my position to communicate what I'm excited about to them via someone like yourself. Okay, so what were you showing off? Uh, I mean, I, I was there, so I, I could uh, I could do this myself, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But tell us about um, tell us about some of your kind of. Uh, uh, you don't have to run us through all. It was six wines each, wasn't it? I think <laughs> yes, you had. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. don't have to run us through all six. But tell us about the kind of um, this why you chose to bring certain wines uh, to the table, if you like. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's always quite. Um, an enjoyable challenge selecting the wines that I want to show for a press tasting from from my kind of buying patch uh, and I do try to where possible put myself in the shoes of of, of, of you all you know who are viewing uh, and, and think well you you're looking for something interesting to write about well I'm going to choose wines that I think frankly would be interesting to write about so often stuff which is from perhaps a slightly lesser known country region variety whatever uh, that's nice because there's an immediate kind of hook with that new discoveries are really key so I mean there was a couple of wines which uh, I mean immediately fit one of those two briefs so I've got a really really interesting and delicious new um, Barros and Shiraz but it's not like 
the Barossa and Shiraz that you might think of immediately. It's actually quite early picked. It's fresh. It's juicy. It's vibrant. Sort of a minimal intervention kind of uh, winemaking approach. And that's that's a winery called Whistler Wines, who are a new supplier to us as well. So that mm. was a bit. Of, that was an obvious choice. You know, it's hot off the press type of thing. Shiver um, down my spine. That one was called. Shiver down my and spine. Yeah. In my little booklet here, Freddie, it gets three stars, and that's the top ranking. I, I scribble oh on gosh. the book. I scribble on the book uh, <laughs> with either uh, no star at all, one, two, or three. Uh, just so that when I go back through it to select to write something, um, I'm looking at the wines that um, it just it brings my attention to the tasting note then. So, yeah, this was lovely. Herbal. Good. Um, a really got kind of crunch to it. Not jammy at all. Lovely, probably no. because of that early picking. No, very good choice. Mm. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. I'm pleased. See, there you go. It was a success. It's uh, worked already. Off the bat there. It's worked yeah. already. But, you know, there were, there were some other really uh, what I thought were quite interesting wines as well. I mean, I had a couple of white wines in there uh, and actually quite uh, fitting that we were talking about Marlborough because one of them yeah. was actually a Marlborough Chardonnay mm. uh, and and I think that you know we all know and love Marlborough because of the Sauvignon Blanc and, and you know it does dominate the region it dominates New Zealand's plantings in general but Marlborough does some fantastic Chardonnay and Pinot uh, in particular so I wanted to show actually well I showed uh, as you know one of each uh, there was a, the Grove Mill Chardonnay, which is under ten pounds, and I just thought offers such a lot of wine for the for the money. And, and then yes, that's what I wrote it. actually. Yeah. Uh, oh, exactly good. that incredible value uh, for nine pounds seventy five uh, for yeah. a, a really you know a, a very lovely layered sort of stone fruit, creamy, very nicely made wine. Bit of struck match, very much a modern mm. sort of style. From I think Chardonnay is so exciting in, in New Zealand anyway. So yes, that got a couple of my stars too. By the way, so oh, that's very good. Well oh, look done. at these these stars are being doled yeah. out in. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, it's, like the, it's like the Oscars, isn't it? Um, exactly. So do you but, get yeah. to taste much of the other wine? I mean, when you work in a... How many buyers are there at the Wine Society in total? There's Six, eight of us. Eight, eight right. Yeah, so yeah. do you get to taste each other's wines all the time? Or are you sort of in your um, bunker, if you like, with your own portfolio of Australia, New Zealand, Austria and Eastern Europe? Do you know, that's actually a really, really good question. And it's been something which has been a, a, quite a hot topic uh, throughout lockdown, because obviously we've all been working uh, in isolation. Uh, and, and normally when we're in the office together, we actually would make a point of trying to taste wines from other people's buying patches because otherwise you get what I guess is, is most commonly referred to as seller palette, which normally applies to, you know, winemakers or people from a particular wine region where they just taste their own wines mm. uh, and become so accustomed to that, that it, you know, can be difficult to benchmark wines from elsewhere, but that can actually also happen with buying regions so interestingly we have our wine champions offer which we do every year which I, you're probably familiar with yes um, and that was well the idea of that came about just over 20 years ago now because our head buyer at the time sebastian thought it was really important that all the buyers taste everybody's wines um you know all their colleagues wines so they just had a campaign where they just said right let's get everything out of the warehouse Let's line it all up. We're all going to taste it together. We're all going to talk about it together. And it's um, it's quite scary, actually, as a buyer, because you're essentially putting your wines out there for your colleagues to tell you whether you, you know, you're doing a good job or not. And then the idea came about that they would then be scored by, you know, scored by your peers. And the top scoring wines would then, you know, as it, as it kind of uh, evolved over the years, the top scoring wines ended up going into this into this offer. But it is a really, really important thing to do, you know, to, to make sure that you're tasting a wide variety of wines because it really helps you to sharpen your palate. Yeah, well, your colleague, Matthew, who inherited uh, uh, Greece from you, I think, you yes, used to yes, buy Greece, yeah. as, uh, I thought did a, a really good job. There were some fantastic wines from Greece in the... Yeah. Press tasting, uh, the uh, Compsos White, uh, the there's a Daphne, um, which yes. is a variety <laughs> I, I love. Um, uh, it always makes me think of Scooby Doo, but um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, then then a a kind of um, hybrid, r very dark uh, rosé, I suppose you'd you'd say, or it might have been a light yeah. red actually. The uh, <laughs> 
the uh, Compsosliatico, I think that was. Um, really fantastic wines that, that really yeah. excited me. Did you get to taste those as well? Do you know I didn't actually uh, on, on Tuesday? No, which was a shame. I didn't actually. Oh, you must. To, well, no, I do need to. Matthew. They're very good. I will. Yeah. I will. No, I mean, the, the, yeah. Greece is so, so exciting at the moment. And actually, you know, Matthew's doing a great job of of uh kind of bringing that excitement to to the to the you know to the wine society members to the press and so on uh but there's such incredible variety of styles and the quality is just it's just been on the up for the last few years actually and it's so great to kind of see these wines get to where they are now i mean it's it's a very very exciting country yeah the quality to price ratio absolutely incredible i think so um for anyone uh who's a wine society member um look out these uh, wines they're, they're i think all available now according to the book and they're, they're just absolutely fantastic uh so i should be writing more about those and if you're not a wine society member by the way you should be because it's a great place <laughs> to buy wine i think should say that as well i'm sure you'd agree freddie but Good. Um, i would agree, uh, I would agree. <laughs> thank you very much it's always great to chat to you i'm really looking Thanks, forward David. to doing it on a monthly basis so yes i'm going to have a headache about something else over the yes, next I month will. and then I'll you have can a headache. come back i'll have a headache Tell about, about how it. i can how i can keep up the the three gold star uh, awards being yes. held out yeah absolutely okay all right thank you very Thanks, much David. cheers you soon. all the best cheers bye the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Time now for our next trio of recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And these are from the 2021 Northern Hemisphere event, judged by panels back in early May, uh, with uh, judges including yours truly, uh, to Spain, first of all, and Ribeiro del Duero. This is Pata Negra Reserva 2016, a gold medal winner with 95 points. The judges said, intriguing nose of lifted violet notes, blackberry bushes and wild mint. Earthy chilli spice and creamy chocolate mousse give a palate that is poised, energetic and full of life. Richly textured and perfectly balanced for a long, resinous finish. Next, it's to California and Trefethen Family Vineyards. They're based in Oak Knoll at the lower end of the Napa Valley, a really wonderful spot beautiful vineyards dragon's tooth 2018 was a silver medal winner with 91 points it's a blend led by malbec with putty verdo and cabernet sauvignon as well uh, the judges said deep and intense wine with lush black fruit cloves cocoa and nutmeg grippy tannins keep the fruit in check in this textured and voluminous example and at Trefethen, they've been making wines for more than 50 years, very much a family operation. And this is from the rockiest part of the vineyard. The name, Dragon's Tooth, celebrates the family's Welsh grandmother and a Welsh dragon adorns the label. I think it's about her being Welsh, not a dragon, by the way, just to be clear. Uh, this is imported by Daniel Lambert, who's a keen eye for a good wine. So expect to find it in a good independent wine store. And finally, to Greece, a silver medal winning Zinomavro Diaporus 2017 from Kia Yanni. The judges said an opulent nose of blueberry, confit tomato and dried raspberry. The palate is lively and expressive with a sour cherry core peppered with notes of leather, licorice and flowers. Well-judged acidity and grippy tannins. And Zinomavro is the principal grape of the northwest of the Macedonia part of, of northern Greece. And the wines here are often favourably compared with Barolo, although they will set you back rather less. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Well, it's slightly shocking that we haven't already mentioned beer, given that we're quite a few episodes into the drinking hour. Uh, but it's been a tough time for the category with the pubs shut for long periods of the last year and a half. That didn't stop us drinking at home, of course. And now with football on our mind, uh, beer 
is, I suspect, going to be even more important. I personally love a pint of real ale. There was nothing quite like that first sip back at the pub after each of the lockdowns, one of the few positives of uh, the lockdowns, I suppose, appreciating beer more afterwards. But I'm in no way an expert in beer. Far from it. Luckily, Alex Davis is. He's the beer buyer for Virgin Wines and he joins us now. Hello, Alex. Thanks for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, as, as I said, pubs sadly shut their doors for lockdown for much of last year. Am I right in uh, my suspicion that people took their uh, beer drinking home instead? Did you see a spike in sales as a result? We did. Um, we, we saw an immediate spike in sales. Um, I suppose it's a combination of things, really, the pubs being closed, which was um, a really bad time. Um, and people having free time, you know, and still on furlough and, and, and some money and the weather was nice, you know, and um, there, we, we saw an immediate spike in sales. Um, we, what we did try and do though, because we, we were in close contact with um, lots of breweries and some were fortunate enough to have packaging lines in place already so they could kind of evolve their business and try and capitalise is absolutely the, the wrong way to describe it, but just shift the way they worked to, 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 to help themselves. Um, however, there were other breweries that relied heavily on, on wet sales, uh, kegs into kegs and casks into pubs. So we did try and recreate some kind of pub experience to, to connect these breweries with um, with our customers. Um, there were tanks of great beer sitting there and nowhere for it to go. So we, we, we managed to do quite a lot of sales in mini kegs in the in the, in the small five five liter format, which has, we had a lot of take up and glowing reviews from customers. So, hopefully, in a difficult time, we did manage to recreate some kind of pub experience for them. Well, I love those kegs actually. When you go to someone's uh, barbecue or something like that, and you see a keg of really good ale, I, I think it is about as as close as you're going to get to that uh, lovely um, pub experience. Um, there's a bewildering array of beers to choose from, even before you were uh, exploring that sort of new area of your business. So how do you go about building a portfolio? Because you can't, even with an online business, you can't have every beer, can you? No, I mean, and it changes, you know, what's available changes faster than you could possibly list it anyway. Um, so how how it appeals to our customers is probably the, the the poignant part to that that question we're really driven by customer feedback we get i mean i've spent hours and hours pouring through feedback and reviews from customers we get um recommendations which we which which i follow up on on every one of different breweries around the country and you know and abroad i see my role in in in, in terms of building a, a portfolio as just trying to be as uh, trying to increase my knowledge to be as thorough as possible about what's available to, to recognise where the, where the quality is, and then just to try and make sure you get the right style of beer to the to the right customer. Um, not every beer drinker like, likes every beer style, of course. It's part part of the fun of it, really. But making sure that when a customer comes to us and they and they, and they place an order, I want them to just be completely confident that they're going to get something that they're going to enjoy. And it could tick tick different boxes. You know, it could be exploring some different styles, or or they just want. 24 cans of a really solid, well-made lager at a good price, um, whatever the situation is. It kind of evolves with customer feedback, I would say. And uh, I suspect those 24 cans will go down uh, rather well uh, this weekend. But um, you've been a wine buyer too. In fact, you are still a wine buyer. Uh, you've spent a number of years doing that and you've kind of extended into beer. Is there a kind of crossover? Does being a wine buyer and having those skills help you choose beers? Yeah, I mean... There's two parts to this, really. I mean, the short answer is yeah, absolutely. But the more I, the more I get into beer and wine, you know, I'm still learning about wine too. You can never learn. You can never reach maximum knowledge on on these no, topics. Too true. Too true. <laughs> um, but the, the the more I, the more I, the more I learn, the more I see huge differences between them. You'll be, you'll often put beer and wine in in a, in the same situation. You know, you'll you'll often be choosing between one or another. In a social situation, for example, but wine for me is much more about where it's from, and beer is about how it's made, generally speaking. So I kind of think of wine having more in common with travel than it does with beer, and beer more in common with cooking than it does with with wine, in a way. So there's a lot to learn product product wise. There's a lot to there's a different mindset involved, I think, to to um, identifying uh, what what works. You know what. Um, what the customers want, even frequency, you know, it's a smaller order. So you need to kind of 
be fresher with what you're offering. Um, whereas wine, you, a wine order, you may planning for the next couple of months. So there, there are differences. But as far as uh, buying goes on paper, you know, it's about setting up the right supply, finding the partners really that where both business models fit together perfectly. You know, it needs to be mutually beneficial. You need to be, all parties need to be happy. If they're not, it doesn't work. So in that sense, my six, seven years wine buying experience has been really, really useful setting up the beer supply. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you've got a kind of global portfolio. I was having a look uh, last night through some of the beers that you've got. You have a lot of beers uh, from other parts of the world. Again, you know, there's a bewildering array to choose from. How, how do you go about selecting the styles and the countries of origin for the global selection? I would use, we, we have a, a monthly subscription box called Beer Box, and that is a really useful, um, a really useful way to explore all of this, because in that particular um, channel, if you like, we what I want to do is is to give options. I want I want customers to, to to feel like they're exploring beer with that. You know, so if I guarantee close to a hundred different beers that you will taste across the year on that scheme, so that gives me real scope to go and find different things from different countries, different styles. I don't want that to be too niche though, because at the at the end of the day, I want customers to enjoy you know i want them to find stuff that they love and they may well find something in there that that doesn't um, hit the mark specifically for them but on the whole i want them to enjoy everything so i don't stretch it too far with those niche styles but but you can push it a bit further than you can do regularly and hopefully over time as people more and more customers join the scheme and they get used to it how it works then you can kind of push those boundaries a little bit further yeah well talking of boundaries uh, we're uh, talking today about low and no alcohol and i've always felt that beer is probably the best innovator in this category. It's certainly, I think, uh, taken the, the greatest leap towards something that really does replicate uh, the experience of the product with the alcohol in it. W would you agree with that? Oh, 100%, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, there are also some good alcohol-free spirits as well. I think that kind of, that style works nicely, but I think beer, beer does it. I mean, it's naturally lower in ABV anyway compared to other alcoholic drinks. So um, there's less of a compromise, if you like, on on the kind of the, the mouthfeel, the texture. Um, but that said, I mean, I tasted tasted the the alcohol free beers that were available ten years ago, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't get into them. And then when I um, started the beer work here, a good two and a half years ago, to say, I tasted some, and I was just absolutely blown away. I couldn't believe it. It tasted like beer, and it didn't it, it didn't have alcohol in it. And it's come on so strongly even since then. I mean, there are very few breweries that don't have a go at at least something lower ABV. Um, you know, table beers at three percent, micro IPAs at two point two point five. They're they're everywhere now, and they're and they're, they're great. They, the, the quality just cannot you, you you cannot argue with it at all. No, I would agree with that, and I think uh, it's uh, it, the the industry is is to be applauded for the work that it's done. So, um, I told you my favourite thing is is real ale. Um, have, have you got a, a particular favourite uh, beer within uh, the portfolio? Um, I'm a fan. I mean, I'm slightly biased here, and perhaps this is the way it is in the real ale world. But I but I do. I'm from Norfolk, and I am. Um, I do like the local breweries around here. I'm a big fan of, of Woodford's, um, and we list their their cool beers. You can't get away from those those beers on 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 the pump around the pub uh, around the pubs in Norfolk. So that would be my pick. Okay, well I'm going to have to look that out because uh, Norfolk's not an area of the world that I uh, know well. But I I saw again saw those beers when I was looking through the portfolio, so I shall have to try one. But uh, Alex, it's great to chat to you and to finally uh, tackle the subject of beer. Thanks for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Oh, sure, thanks for having me. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. And that's it for The Drinking Hour for this week. Thank you to my guests and thank you for joining us. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Do follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to follow me, you're very welcome. And if you liked what you heard, uh, the begging bit now, please give us a five-star review on iTunes because that really helps with the rankings. And I look forward to talking to you next time.